This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Quantization. Climate change is one of the most urgent problems of our era. The United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs, report number 152 from 2017, focuses on climate change and social inequality. The report identifies three main channels through which the inequality, aggravating effects of climate change, develops. Increase in the exposure of the disadvantaged group to the adverse effects of climate change, increase in their susceptibility to damage caused by climate change, and decrease in their ability to cope and recover from the damage suffered. The report shows the relation between climate change and marginalized population. We decided to focus on these issues in responding to marginalized populations in a series of conversations. How these issues affect cities and societies, and at the same time, urban planning and decision-making of future growth. Are these top-down or bottom-up issues? Is economic growth against sustainability? And how to empower the marginalized population in the process of climate change? We are starting with sustainability and inclusion a conversation between an architect and a world expert in the field of inclusive design. You are listening to Signal on Quantization Podcast. This episode, Sustainability and Inclusion. us to do the introductory yes, <laughs> okay <laughs> okay we introduce ourselves yes yeah. okay i'm yuta tavranos i'm the director of the inclusive design research center at ocad university and i'm uh, john peterson i'm a senior associate at mjma architects in toronto i'm also the uh, uh, director of sustainable design and building innovation We've had quite a number of local events, global events that have brought these two topics together. Um, one of the the things that is happening currently is uh, reactions and and efforts towards something called Architects Declare. Can you tell me a little bit about that, John? Yeah, the Architects Declare movement started in the UK in uh, May of uh, 2019, and uh, it's been a bit of a groundswell across the Commonwealth, particularly. Uh, with uh, Ireland, uh, Australia, New Zealand all having their own architects declare 
And um, the the Canadian Architects Declare movement came out of the uh, REIC's uh, Committee for Regenerative Design. And um, uh, it came to being in around around Labor Day weekend in September of mm-hmm. uh, 2019. Um, and uh, uh, so far, we've got over 170 signatories uh, on it. Um, and it's uh, just growing from there. And what do the architects commit to that are signatories? Well, the UK architects declare um, particularly looked at uh, – the uh, climate emergency that we are currently in, um, with a particular uh, focus on biodiversity and uh, an idea toward that all design should be regenerative as well. Um, within the Canadian context, uh, and this is you know, a kind of a great laudable aspect of it, is um, it brought in ideas of indigeneity, it brought in ideas of circular economy, and um, kind of uh, broadened the ask a little bit more of what people were signing on for. That's great. And so there are quite a few resonant ideas within inclusive design and within the various movements that support sustainability. One, you you mentioned biodiversity, and certainly inclusive design can be characterized as designing for diversity and designing in in such a way that we engage diversity and we think of the full diversity of potential users or stakeholders or individuals that are impacted by the design. Um, can you think of other ways in which the two fields might be resonant? Well, I think one aspect in terms of the the work we do at, at our office, um, we have a very strong aspect of community design. And um, we're seeing a lot of uh, the aspects of resiliency fitting into that. And um, resiliency at its heart really wants to be inclusive and diverse within how it's responding to the community. So we do a, a tremendous amount of uh, community engagement process and how to really vet out the programs that we're putting into some of these public buildings. So uh, you can see that there's a um, really a great, really strong synergies between inclusivity and these community design, especially when you're talking about some of the kind of the more uh, communities that are at risk, um, and particularly when you're talking about climate emergency, you're talking about um, when there's uh, storm events, and you know maybe there's power outages. Where do the people go? And the, those kind of idea of um, resiliency centers is really strong and um, and uh, becoming much more of a requirement amongst some of the work that we're doing in the cities. Yeah, in inclusive design, we talk about the benefits of designing right to the edge and engaging individuals that have difficulty with or can't currently use the urban plan or the current existing designs, that that's where we get further innovation. That's where um, we actually create a system if we're designing to encompass that edge that is much more adaptable and much more flexible and responsive. One of the things we also talk about is designing, recognizing that we're currently designing in a complex adaptive system, whether it's a city or a building or a community. And uh, there uh, we need to attend to individuals that are at that edge because they are, as you say, in, um, in climate disasters or any of these scenarios that are coming up faster and more furiously, the individuals that are at the edge or that can't use or or have difficulty using our current urban plans or our current designs, whatever they may be, are the first to feel the effects. Mm -hmm. Um, They are the stress testers, the canaries in the coal mine, as we say. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, um, uh, they're also uh, probably some of the most um, 
soft-spoken within the communities. They're the ones that don't vocalize. And so, you know, it's, uh, uh, you're you're hoping that the design team is able to advocate for those players within the design. Um, and uh, I mean, it's always a challenge when, you know, when you're in a kind of a, a meeting space and you've got a number of people around a table and the, the most soft-spoken one may not be the one that's, uh, or may be the one that needs to actually be um, saying the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, uh, we, we try to encourage engagement at many different levels and, and in terms of kind of how we go about whether it's uh, through kind of community design where you're going to specific communities themselves. Like uh, we have a project up in Western North York where we had a meeting at a community center, but then we also actually went out to the, the local uh, high school and actually had a session there with all the students that would be engaging within that within that building complex. But um, you get the feeling that there's also a lot of people that might not have come out. And so there was online surveys that we tried to put out as well. And um, trying to, uh, again, it's that it's uh, it's how do you how do you engage the the people that are um, not really wanting to be engaged? Right. Well, one of the things that we've certainly heard from communities that we try to engage is that there is either some consultation fatigue within the disability community. There are five groupings that are that people like to check off we've we've encouraged or we've had the participation of someone who's blind someone who is deaf etc so designing participation and giving voice to people who may not have the um, resources or have been excluded from the decision making table before is a, is a big part of what we focus on an inclusive design. How do we design the table? How do we determine who's missing? How do we bring people in to help us design a table, meaning a decision-making table, that would uh, include their perspective and would respect their perspective? What types of strategies do you use? Oh, I mean, in terms of the strategies that we... uh try to employ um it's it's as broad a toolkit as you could possibly imagine <laughs> it, it's like it come it's online surveys it's mail outs it's um uh, creating a, a website creating a social media presence hands-on um where uh where we'll have a big community meeting and we'll be out there on force as you know, like get a, a third of the office out just to basically uh, meet with people and talk with them and try to understand what what they desire um, and, and, you know, supply food and drink so that they can actually be there with their families as well. So that, you know, the kids aren't too bored, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, you gotta, you gotta try, you gotta become a part of the community almost to, to really engage with it. And then it's, uh, it's, uh, super interesting when you start to kind of anticipate and like, what do we need to do now? One, uh, one interesting thought that I've seen over the past little while is this idea of community resilience. But, you know, when we design these buildings for these, uh, for the community um, to be have it be an active member and kind of enhance and but um, there there there's so, sometimes there's um, organizational resilience which is a really mm-hmm. super interesting conversation to have and it's just like is there a potential there where you can actually help the community organize themselves so that they can better serve and be resilient for themselves and so like you know getting understanding whether there's a, uh, an elder, elder um, or aging population that comes in and they need to meet more regularly and you design you maybe i don't want to say you're designing the group but um mm-hmm. you you help the organize help the community organize themselves right. to yeah. become a little bit more resilient especially when it comes in times of um emergency and it's just like you know if there is a power outage and um this person hasn't been seen for a couple of days how do you go about um in those moments of crisis 
pick up a phone or knock on that door to find out if that person's okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we have a, a strategy that we call embedded co-design where what we do is we create a kit that helps community organizations to co-design or to be able to articulate and, and capture what it is that uh, they require. It sounds like that's very similar or you're using similar tactics. Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't been able to use this one in particular, but it, like, it's, I know it's something that we've been talking about internally and it's a, it, it, it'll, um, I'm excited to think about what that means for the next building that we design. And the idea of enhancing community, especially kind of like talking about future climate, I mean, the, the modeled pieces that the city of Toronto has gone ahead and hired consultants to actually uh, predict what the future climate is going to be by 2050. It's quite startling to see the, the shift of what we're looking at. And um, the design of buildings that we're doing now has to – should function just well enough for that same future climate. And when you're talking about changing um, complete um, climate zones with, mm-hmm. within that in the next 20 years, 30 years, it's really quite startling. And um, so you, you hope that um, using the, the best passive strategies you can possibly use will actually you know, make the building flexible and adaptive to those future climates and making sure that you're not creating something that's going to be um, a bit of a burden to the community later on. So most of our work at the moment is in the digital space where there is much more opportunity for uh, something that is adaptable, that's mutable, that's plastic, where you can have behaviors that change over time. Are there similar things within architecture or within industrial design or community design? Well, I think that the, uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, architecture is a very um, digitally uh, adept profession, particularly within kind of practices that are particularly interested in uh, this aspect of uh, responding to climate change. Um, You know, being able to kind of actively um, use uh, data and metrics to kind of drive some design aspirations within the project and um, understanding how, what impact that gesture is going to have in terms of the use of the space, um, in terms of uh, how it operates or, and like, is it, is it a detriment to it later on down the road? Um, uh, I think the, these, uh, uh digital files or, uh, whether they, uh, be a, a building information model or even just something as dumb as a, a small graphic model, I, I think they all have, um, their influence within the projects and particularly how we put them into analysis software so that we can better understand where they're going to fit in, uh, uh, when they get built as well as in, you know, in another 20 years in that future climate. So these are predictive models that you use to plan and then execute the design of the building. Exactly, yeah. Do you anticipate that there will be greater use of designs that can respond to changes, that can respond to... uh, So I know there's been discussion of things like 4D printing or um, embedding uh, behavioral aspects or uh, into a variety of different structures within buildings. Is that actually coming to fruition in any way? Um, I I think there's a lot of um, uh, research going on around the world in terms of uh, um, the expansion of uh, how um, digital processes as well as uh, new manufacturing techniques can influence architecture. Um, Sometimes the the best piece of architecture, though, that you can do is 
something that's adaptive and um, flexible within uh, its own structure. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the, like one of the greatest kind of examples of that would be the uh, Victorian warehouse building. Um, mm -hmm. Those are adaptable. Those are um, resilient materials. They're um, na natural materials tend to be wood structures with some brick right. veneer. And um, those have housed many startups, many design firms, many anything it can uh, possibly be. It, they can be put into these flexible environments in an urban urban context. And um, they're all around the, this uh, particular neighborhood that we're here in Toronto. But that just goes to show that, you know, you can have something that is over 120 years old mm -hmm. and still be truly effective in terms of it being adaptable and resilient within the context of what it needs to be as a as as an architectural framework. And you were speaking about data using data to predict and to help you to make decisions. One of the things that I've been quite concerned about is the data analytics that we use that are um, based upon statistical significance and predictive modeling, which of course takes you away from those individuals at the edge that we were talking about uh, because you require a large homogenous sample in order to make any conclusive um, determinations and the prediction or probability always reverts to the mean. Mm -hmm. So do you have any practices where you are looking at edge and outliers, small minorities, edge scenarios? Um, I would think that would be quite relevant, especially as you're trying to predict climate changes or weak signals of um, disruptive or um, unexpected events that might happen with, with the buildings. Yeah, I find that kind of funny, like uh, just thinking about it now, that um, the, the use of data, like when you're collecting all of this data, uh, particularly from, you know, whether it be for surveys, is that you do your best to try to kind of almost rationalize the data. And sometimes that tends to push out the outliers. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get smooth it all out. So you can actually get something that's more about the mean and the median. So that is completely in the antithesis of actually <laughs> looking for those outliers. Yeah. I mean, in, in a in kind of a weird way. So um, uh, I, I would say that uh, I I don't know whether... I don't think we're at the stage yet where we're looking specifically to uh, uh, with uh, within the data collect data collection processes we use um, to try to um, achieve or attain the voice of those people that are at risk. And and that's maybe that's just an inadvertent aspect of how we're collecting this data. Maybe we need to ramp up our our, our game to actually be able to um, um, hear these hear these groups. Right. So you think it's it's a issue of the data gap, or do you think that there I think is maybe, the maybe, way maybe the it's just our happens. maybe it's just our own skills within the office. Maybe we just have to um, become a little better at what we do there. But I know that uh, uh, when you get these big, massive data sets, and you just got to collect them, you you are you are trying to winnow them down to something that is mm -hmm. tangible and say, oh yeah, well there's there's one correlation there that we can pull out. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, interesting. I never really thought about it that way. But in terms of the algorithms that go into understanding that data um, mm -hmm. or like whether you know, using generative design to um, uh, utilize that data to inform something else, I mean, those are these are things we're starting to explore a little bit. But again, an algorithm is is it's a bias. And like mm -hmm. you're yes, writing, yeah. you're writing a bias. Right, and you're biasing towards <laughs> the largest homogenous group. It's majority rules. And majority rules. So um, yeah, unless unless we start to rethink our algorithms to kind of 
pull out those outliers and to, 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 like, you get the go for the long tail and and yeah, that's a that's an interesting right. discussion. But it's also the weak signals. They're the the the. I mean, as we said at the beginning, the individuals that are at the edge are the first signs that something's going wrong. They're the most vulnerable. Yeah. And yeah. so they're the best stress testers of whatever your design might be. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. You can always you, – you, you run through, you get your, get your data, you run through it with your algorithm to kind of define that design and then you test it against with uh, the outlier. I think there's general agreement that we're in moving into or we are already in a complex event horizon. So it isn't uh, the usual – Gaussian curve or the normal distribution in terms of what events are coming down the road. Yeah, no things are becoming <laughs> more and more complex and more entangled and interactive. So it's complexity theory needs to be part of our thinking. And within a, a complex terrain, you need that diversity and you especially need the individuals that are unlike the typical or the average because they are the bellwether of of something that you may not have considered that isn't anticipated that's not within your current vision. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So, uh, one of the things we say in inclusive design is that um, inclusive design is a precarious value. That nobody would disagree that it's a good thing mm -hmm. um, that you should do it, and in fact, in inclusive design, inclusion, diversity have become these buzzwords that, to some extent, are losing uh, their real meaning. Same with sustainability, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Same with sustainability, and uh, the, whenever there's a budget crunch or there's a time crunch, it, they sort of fall off the the table, or they. They are relegated to something that's going to happen afterwards. Is that a similar phenomenon in sustainability? As oh well? yeah. Well, you can see that within the architects declare movement because they've uh, reframed it. Um, it's now it's in a climate emergency, um, just to let people know that is something a little bit more drastic. It's not something that's going to be like thirty years. We're talking. We have like ten years to respond. Um, the um, the um, bringing out new language uh, idea of regenerative design, although it's been around since the seventies and um, really emboldened during the, during the nineties and early two thousands, uh, the aspect of biodiversity bringing all those pieces out is super interesting and I think uh, really important. Um, the aspects of inclusivity, I think, within um, decolonization and indigeneity is a mm -hmm. super poignant one for Canadians. Um, and uh, I can't wait to see how, how that um, comes to fruition within the design as we move forward. I think uh, um, it's probably one of the hardest hardest ones to hit because uh, the, the groups, again, just don't seem to have the voice within mm -hmm. the communities yeah. that we're doing the work in. Well, it, it requires a huge paradigm shift in terms of what need, how we need to rethink not just our processes, our assumptions, Mm -hmm. And it, it's critical that it does happen. There are quite a number of affinities between um, inclusive design, especially inclusive design research and indigenous research methods and the uh, emphasis on multiple perspectives, the holistic view of, of what you are intervening in. One of the things that we've been exploring is this idea of epistemic justice where epistemology being ways of knowing, mm -hmm. and um, there has been a tendency to ignore certain ways of knowing or, or disrespect certain ways of knowing. And 
some people uh, or many people also talk about epistemicide, meaning that we're sort of killing off to some extent the various ways of knowing. And those ways of knowing are additional perspectives that we need for that diversity of approaches that we need to take to the complex adaptive system that we're working with right now. And certainly um, Indigenous communities have a much richer, more fulsome or more multi-perspectival mm-hmm. sense of how to to look at something, how to explore the possibilities that are there. Yeah. Um, the science tradition is all about using data. Data is from the past. There's very little there with respect to imagining futures or thinking about what might be. It's more about predicting what might be from what was in the past or what is currently in the present, the data that we have. So I I think we need to go well beyond that. If we simply use data and data analytics and evidence as we currently think of it, then we are restricting our views to optimizing from the past. It's, It's not a way to change culture. It's not a way to to do something that's uh, that is a paradigm shift that's significantly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some of the kind of indigenous uh, principles that uh, uh, have come out in the past little while, like in the sense of uh, um, how designers can respond to it, looking at the three generations back, the current generation, and three mm-hmm. generations forward, is a super interesting way to um, really um, think differently about the project. Right. And uh, trying to figure out how, how what that means. Yeah, and our responsibility to future generations. <laughs> yeah, and, that. and it, it really comes down to place and uh, understanding. Like going back those three generations is a powerful message, mm-hmm. and to understand that uh, of, of those people that were in that particular place. And there was a an uh, indigenous design conference in Ottawa uh, um, a couple of years ago with their, and done in conjunction with the RIC Festival. And uh, it was really amazing to see some of the worldwide um, leaders in terms of um, indigenous design come forward. There was a group out of um, New Zealand that were kind of, um, one presenter, she was doing her master's thesis on the idea of uh, stories in place. And it was really just beautiful in terms mm-hmm. of her, what she was using in terms of GIS mapping and bringing in stories of place and how that right. means in terms yeah. of what who she was and uh, who she was within her community. It was really just mind-blowing. But it was it was all very beautifully done in terms of the mm-hmm. process that she went through and the technology she was actually using. It was really quite, quite, quite wonderful. Right. And certainly within the science tradition or the Western tradition, what we're, what we're doing is we're winnowing down to a, a more and more siloed, more uh, fairly specific and reductionist view of Yeah, not planning, expansive. Not, not exact. expansive, not connected, not, yes, neither connected through generations nor connected even through disciplines or fields. And mm-hmm. yes, I think we definitely need to broaden our horizon in terms of the types of perspectives we include. Yeah, and I think uh, um, coming to it from uh, just a maybe a, like a fundamental concept of trying to, um, uh, what does it mean to decolonize your design? You mm-hmm. know, how do you get past that Western tradition? To, yeah, you know, like it's it's really uh, for architects, it's it's an incredibly difficult conversation to have. Right. And yes. Especially with old old white males like myself, so <laughs> a little <laughs> yeah. bit of a problem there. Yeah, and in, and in our area, because we're frequently dealing with individuals with disabilities, there is this 
tendency towards charity models, uh, which have have similar issues. One of the things I I frequently talked about to try to communicate um, the types of futures that we could have is I, I say that there are three types of potential futures. The one is the continuing with the the type of competitive notions of what is Darwinism uh, evolving through survival of the fittest, meaning our misinterpretation of what it is to be fit, which generally means the more powerful as opposed to the more adaptive. We seem to have misinterpreted what Darwin actually meant. And there, what the future is ignoring the individuals that are weaker, uh, taking away resources, exploitative, competitive systems, which of course means that we need to spend more and more on defense. We need to uh, create rigid structures. We become monocultures and (laughs) it it becomes a fairly dystopian thing. The second is not a a charity model where um, we have the haves being generous to the have-nots, but that sets up this... uh, terrible power imbalance where mm-hmm. you have you have a race to the bottom in terms of who is most pitiable and you have charity fatigue and that degrades to a very similar scenario to the first scenario and then the third scenario is something where we are more inclusive and we thereby and collaborative and collectively find our way out of this current disaster that we're in um, or the multiple disasters that we've created. I think there are, we almost need to upend the values that we are currently promoting or that are most popular at the moment. And in fact, I think in the area that we work in, in digital systems, the only value that is being communicated is popularity, Mm -hmm. Uh, popularity devoid of of any other particular value with respect to likes and um, hits and clicks and things of that nature. That's how we seem to be determining our decisions is through what is most popular. Yeah. I think that uh, um, in architecture, particularly um, within uh, the, the space of community design, um, it's really important for us to understand the success of our projects so that we can enhance those pieces so that mm-hmm. we are encouraging that third option, you know, <laughs> to say that, you know, um, I mean, and, and, you know, one aspect that it kind of gets undernoticed or underserved is uh, the aspect of kind of creating beautiful spaces and spaces that people want to be in. And uh, one thing we try to do in all of our work is to really just talk about trying to prioritize uh, kind of human comfort, trying to trying to prioritize like how people feel comfortable within a space and connection with uh, and nature and kind of aspects of biophilia are all becoming very, very popular within it. But they're all very strong in the sense of creating those comfortable spaces. But, um, you know, we're going through the process now trying to understand and trying to create process of validating the work that we've done and Mm -hmm. to make sure that we can continue that work and we can understand when things don't exactly work for that particular community or can can, like we've found that um, some communities want to have uh, uh, group cooking events. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe recent immigrants that where they you know, do group cooks where there's many different families come together. And so you have a community kitchen, which is an industrial one and 
heavily used beautifully. Um, and um, it, it's really kind of exciting to see that you're enabling that within the community. But, you know, it's, it, it's hard for us to know that that's going to be a success. It, oh, right. it, you know, yeah. Even if someone says they're going to – they want it, but, you know, is it really going to be used? Because mm-hmm. there are other examples where they weren't exactly used that successfully. Yeah. And, how, and I guess it also depends on what is under your control and what isn't – what are the other elements that you need to bring in yeah. that are not – under your purview. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when, when typically with a lot of this uh, community work that we do, um, the program that's brought to us is um, is fleshed out to a certain point, but um, it's validated through all of this community aspects and community work and engagement and pro- process that we go out to ask mm-hmm. the people what they want. Right. And, and and if people are brought in as and have agency within the decision making, then they're invested in it. Yes. And they have some sense of, of responsibility and engagement in the design as well. Yeah. The hard one is when you get into some of these uh, community meetings and there are some people with uh, an oversized voice and yes, you know, right. it's like, it's, okay, <laughs> you know, it's, it's calm. like, you know, there might be like a couple of people shouting for one particular thing. And it's just like, well, there's another 20 people over there being completely silent. Right. Let's go over that. See what the twenty people are looking for. So it's it's it, it's it's that's again talking about those outlier pieces of data that you try to like. Let's not look at that particular one. I know they're very vocal, and they have a big voice, but you know we do have to look at other people. One of the the concerns that I have, uh, we work in a space that is – the technology space is seen as the space which needs to continuously progress or there needs to be this transformation. Certainly IT companies feel that in order to – for business sustainability, which of course is a, a co- completely different interpretation of the word, um, they need uh, to content, continuously innovate, continuously progress and there is this um, graph that Thomas Friedman has in his book, which shows that technology is adapting at an exponential rate. I mean, it, it's um, Moore's law, of course, uh, mm-hmm. nods to that as well. And but people are uh, adapting at a linear rate, and this, uh, in order to maintain that exponential growth or that open growth curve. There needs to be continuous innovation and and even a paradigm shift continuously, a, a, a new paradigm shift coming faster and faster all the time. So there is pressure within the companies, within the market, within the economies that are dependent upon these technologies to continuously accelerate the uh, progress, as as it's called, which of course then sacrifices quite a number of the things that that we're talking about. I actually think that it's worse than that graph shows. I think that the way that we've been designing our systems, uh, certainly our technology systems, our social media, um, our artificial intelligence, the data systems that we're going to be deploying all over the place, whether it's in smart communities or other uh, innovations, are causing people to be less adaptive. And um, I would also say that there is a similar curve where technologies are becoming more and more connected 
and we are reducing the person-to-person connection through many of the technologies that we're designing. And that connection or tying together of a diversity of perspectives and creating adaptivity amongst people is something that is required for both sustainability and for inclusive design. But for whatever reason, um, because of the other forces and pressures at play, we seem to be moving further and further away from that. Is do you share that? Um, I, 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 I mean, arch- architecture uh, ultimately needs to get built, right? And mm-hmm. then the, yeah. um, I think construction is probably one of the least technologically ad- adept at this point in times. Right. Uh, pieces of that puzzle, and um, uh, but I see whether whether the adoption curve is linear or whether it's more flat is is one thing because I, you know. The, but I think I feel positive that there is going to be some change in terms of how things get built, and particularly um, in the future. And uh, hopefully, we get into this in terms of uh, utilizing um, aspects of it in our current designs or future designs is the idea of the circular economy where you're actually talking Mm -hmm. not only about it being built but actually about it it being disassembled and reused. And um, uh, I mean I have very high hopes in terms of that in the digital process being a part of it because I mean there's no reason to think that as we go about building our building information models that um, the information that goes into them can't be something that can be put up into a kind of a public database which talks about these buildings as as a resource within your community and say, you know, within its timeline, you know, it's, it's coming free and you suddenly realize, oh, I can have all of this wood or I can have all of this steel that can come back into play in terms of the next designs that come up. And I, I have high, high hopes in terms of those digital aspects playing into it. Whether that comes into kind of uh, um, enabling kind of um, people within a community or individuals within that, that's I think that that they're they're not quite at the same end of the spectrum on that. But um, I do have high hopes for kind of at least the the ability of our profession, um, from architecture to constructors to everybody that's part of this building building environment. I, I do have high hopes for what we can do for the future. That's great. Yeah. So um, you were saying adoption being at a linear. In fact, the the graph is about adaptation or ad- adaptability, mm-hmm. um, that the technology is adapting. We're not adapting. Um, right. But I, I like the discussion of a, a circular economy because uh, full environmental costing, I, I think there's a, a corollary in full social costing. So what are the implications of our designs with respect to all of the individuals that will be impacted by it? What are the, um, what economists are now calling externalities that we're not currently considering? Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I think to some extent, the the full social costing is piggybacking on or um, learning from the full environmental costing that is happening in the built environment or in the industrial design stages. Uh, But uh, as where it's probably easier to come up with what are the actual externalities when we're talking about the environment, it's it's quite difficult from a social perspective to um, be able to show that by virtue of displacing these individuals, these are the costs that that have come about or by virtue of excluding within your design the participation of this group. These are the the health costs, the 
uh, mental health costs, the uh, poverty costs that that you might be coming up with. Yeah, the uh, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, just on this recent project that we were doing for the with the uh, City of Toronto project, um, we um, uh, actually were able to um, be part of a little bit of a um, test of uh, utilizing this uh, triple bottom line software. So bringing in the, the 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 social or political aspects along with the environmental and the economic all into play so you could actually do make um, uh, more informed decisions. And um, it utilizes uh, uh, a, a whole raft of studies that are done around the world in terms of being able to put in to, to find those social political costs and, and um, to find out what are the values associated with it. You know, in terms of uh, what's the what's the social benefit of uh, having a lower uh, carbon footprint in your building? Mm-hmm. You know, there are studies that are out there that are uh, relevant to it, and, and being able to put numbers to it was really an amazing process. And uh, uh, it was uh, I, uh, I'm hoping that we can start to utilize that for most of our projects moving forward to to be able to kind of pinpoint those things for our clients to see. To mm-hmm. understand that, you know, it's more than just uh, a building that they have to run. You know, it does a lot of other things. It, right. it engages and touches on so many people. And this, this idea of externalities is just it, – it perfectly touches down into that – those, uh, those uh, uh, triple bottom line. And you were talking about uh, the divest movement. Can you say some more about oh, that? Oh, yeah. No, I mean uh, – um, uh, Jennifer Cutbill, who is one of uh, one of the um, um, key drivers behind the Architects Declare uh, movement here in Canada, um, was just uh, uh, texting and emailing with me about um, uh, some recent movement uh, that uh, she's kind of involved with uh, uh, in Architects Divest, and it's uh, uh, it's about, uh, from what I understand, it's it's about trying to kind of have a little bit more clarity in terms of the, the financial support for things that are not related to things that produce – that are part of a carbon economy. Um, mm-hmm. So to try to have some of the larger financial organizations not to divest themselves of some of their kind of uh, maybe oil sands investment or such. Uh, 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 there was one stat I read where it was over – since 2016, there's been over $400 billion worth of investment by the four major financial institutions of uh, uh, – in in oil oil and petrochemical industry. So, I mean, that is quite startling to think that in, you know, in the past three years that that amount of money going into it. So I think there's been a, there's a bit of a movement forward in terms of trying to um, encourage um, our financial institutions to divest and also talk about architects and how we're involved within that as well. One of the concerns, of course, in this space is there's very few incentives to do the those types of things. Um, can you see – do you think there's a role for a regulatory role or a government role or how do you think we're going to have a sufficient critical mass to actually make a difference with respect to – sustainability or these types of ethical investments and ethical planning? I think it's absolutely uh, um, crucial uh, for our regulatory uh, boards to get involved and to set limits because I think that's the only way that the market can respond, particularly in how how things are built. Um, I mean, the... uh, 
we need that. I think that uh, one of the more successful countries out there such as Germany have legislated these things quite handily over the past couple of decades and they're far more advanced than we are in terms of meeting their obligations and goals within their everyday building stock. Um, we've got a long way to go. I mean architects, we don't have a tremendous uh, say in terms of we, like we impact maybe like 2 to 3 percent of the buildings built in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's quite startling to think that. And um, so I think that um, to make an impact on all of the other buildings, even, even uh, buildings that already currently exist that need to be brought up to standards, um, we, need, we, need, um, the, the, uh, we need the government to take a strong stance and to help, uh, help set guidelines that can influence our clients to tell us what to do. Because ultimately, we're, we're responding to our clients. We are consultants and we, right. we work to what their goals and aspirations are. We try to advocate for certain betterment, mm-hmm. but um, ultimately it's, it's their pocketbook. It's, it's, it's their monies that are going into the investment in their communities. And all we can do is to basically try to influence something a little bit in terms of movement over. If you've got a heavy regis- uh, legislative or regulatory um, backbone behind it, then it makes it a lot easier to actually make the buildings that we should be building. So one of the things, of course, that we see here in Canada, but certainly more even in other areas, is this uh, widening disparity, which is made worse by displacement of communities that, because of the pressure to to have more uh, buildings, housing, cities growing, etc. How much of a role do you think architects can play and what types of things could architects do to help uh, reverse some of that disparity? Oh, I mean, I want, I want to be um, aspirational for what architects can do because, you know, I think uh, architect, architecture as, a, as an education is a really profoundly robust and quite round one. I think it really kind of uh, allows you to kind of like strategically, analytically think about things well as keeping an overall holistic view. But the uh, the impact of what architects can do. A lot of people don't even really quite understand what we do as a profession, anyways. <laughs> so it's, it's it's hard for us to think that we can have an over mm-hmm. over large kind of view of things. But I think um, architects are very well placed to be leaders within the community, mm-hmm. and, I, and maybe that's just something we need to do a little bit more of. We need to become more of these outgoing leaders within the community to maybe it's more political offices, more, um, you know, get, getting onto uh, committees committees within communities and just basically having a, a bigger voice, something that and, and uh, something that advocating for all of the things that we're actually talking about today. Well, thank you. Are we done? Well, I got the signal. So you got the signal. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Quantization and Utah and John for accepting our invitation. For more information, please check our website, quantization.ca. A special appreciation to Marshall Bureau for escorting all songs.
Quantization Podcast.